Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you with us as we continue our series, Our Church, and our look at What Does God Want in a Church? Today, Lead Pastor David Fossil has us looking at Revelation 1 as we consider our worship. We're reminded of what worship is, why it's significant, and how we could or should be doing it better. Listen as Pastor Dave helps us discover that there's a little more to worship than expressing our love to God. Things like commitment, obedience, thanks, and allegiance. We're challenged through this message to see that worship is all about Jesus and not about us. It was early Sunday morning when he started to walk to the east side of the island to uh, the place that he called his, his alone and special place where he would have alone time with God. It, it had been unusually hot over the last couple of days, so he wanted to be able to get there and spend some time there and, and get back uh, before it became unbearably hot. The island that he had uh, called home now for about four to five months um, it, it used to have an active volcano, which meant that there were literally thousands of rocks littered throughout this island of various different sizes. It also meant that as he walked, he had to keep stopping to, to get rid of the pebbles that were stuck in his sandals. You know, technically, he was a, he was a prisoner on the island. He was supposed to be under sol- solitary confinement, but the guards, they didn't care if he wandered during the day because there was no one else on the island. It was just him. And there was no way he was going to get out and off the island, and so the only time that they confined him technically was at night when they would restrict him to his room. But uh, while he'd been there, they'd allowed him to wander throughout the island. He'd explored it all. He'd even had time to plant a little garden. But most of the time, he would just spend his time during the day reflecting on what had been the last six years. He was actually surprised to be alive. All of his friends or his co-workers had died not, not just died, they, they'd experienced violent death at the, at the hands of the Roman Empire. He was the only one of the twelve that Emperor Domitian had, had allowed to live. For whatever reason, in, instead of being executed, they'd sent him to this Alcatraz type of an island where he was to be imprisoned for the rest of his life. He finally got to his special place where he would have his alone time and he spent the first half an hour just looking at the waves crash onto the beach. It was a beautiful place. He sat underneath the pine tree and eventually he pulled out one of the scrolls that he he owned and he started reading from the prophet Isaiah. It was on the Lord's Day on Sundays where he he felt especially alone. It, It was on those Sundays where he especially missed being able to interact with other followers of Yeshua when they would gather together and sing praises to God and learn about this master that they had followed. But being alone wasn't going to keep him from doing what he knew he should do and what he wanted to do on Sundays, which was to worship God. And so he read from the prophet Isaiah for about 30 or so minutes. Then he did the best that he could. He sang a couple songs that he remembered, just him. And then he started to pray. About 10 minutes into his prayer time, he, he actually thought he was getting a migraine because he started, to, he started to get those flashes in the corner of his eyes like you get when you get one of those headaches. And so he rubbed his eyes, but it didn't go away. In fact, it got worse. Uh, the, the, the stars turned into flashes and there were different colors. And it's almost like he didn't know and realize what he was seeing. And it, he felt in a weird, strange way like, like he was going into some sort of other dimension. It was weird. He got a little scared, but then there was a a loud voice, like trumpet loud, but it was also a calming voice. And the voice said to him, my son, John, I want you to record the revelation, the vision that I'm giving you so that all of my servants may know what is to come. What I've shared with you is the beginning of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. John, the apostle, finds himself on the island of Patmos in solitary confinement, imprisoned by the emperor Domitian. And it is on one early Sunday morning that God gives him a vision, 
a vision of the things that are to come. Now, most of us associate the book of Revelation, rightly so, with the end times. That's mainly what it's about. But what many of us don't realize is that the the first three chapters don't really talk about the end times. Chapter two and chapter three really are a message to, to the church, to us, in terms of what we're to do and not do, so on and so forth. Chapter one is what we're going to focus on this morning. It is a chapter that speaks to our topic this morning. We're going to be talking about worship, what it is and why it's significant, how we should be doing it better. Uh, if you're just joining us, we started a brand new series last week called Our Church. We do this every so often, once or so a year. We, we kind of rally the troops, we circle the wagons, and we make sure that we as a church aren't just plain church, right? We, we want to make sure that we're, we're doing church the way this book, the way God tells us to do church. And so last week we talked about Matthew chapter 28, the, the mission of the church. It doesn't matter if you're a church in the Bay Area, or if you're in Bangladesh, or you're in Buenos Aires. It, J- Jesus, God gives the church, the universal church, one mission. To go and make disciples. To try and reach people for Christ, to connect them to God, and then collectively for us to all take steps of maturity in Christ. That's our mission, right? doesn't matter where we are as a church in the world. Today we're going to be talking about, and I've been kind of waiting to talk about this. I, I wanted to do it about six months ago, and I decided I'm going to wait till we get a new worship pastor. And talk about worship and what it is and, and why it's significant. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Grab your phone, pull it up on your app. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read through what is the vision given to John. And then I'm going to try and break down for you. I think there's some absolutely fabulous things in, in Revelation chapter 1 that can inform us as to, like I said, what is worship and why it's significant. Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The reason he was thrown on this island is because he refused to worship the emperor. That's why he's here. Rightly so. And he gets into this topic of worship in terms of what it is and why it's significant. Verse 10. On the Lord's day, on Sunday, when I was in the spirit, I heard behind me a loud voice. It was like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. I turned around and to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands were someone like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with golden sash around his chest. His hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In the right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like that of the sun, shining in its all of brilliance. When I saw this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as as though dead. But then he placed his hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first. I'm the last. I am the living one. I, I was dead. But look now, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Write down, therefore, what you've seen, both what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are seven churches. Um. What I want you to do right now is just to start by giving us a definition of worship. Very basically understood. Let's put it on the screen. Worship is is nothing more than expressing our love to God. Uh, Now, I got this definition from Purpose Driven uh, Church or Purpose Driven Life written by Rick Warren. I like this definition because it's short, it's compact, it's accurate, and it's biblical. Okay. Now, sometimes, however, with short definitions, they don't maybe kind of complete the whole picture. So... Just to make sure we're understanding the whole picture of what is worship. Yes, the primary idea is me expressing my love to God. That's the definition we're going to stick with. But there's also a little bit more to it. Let me me show you. It's also expressing my commitment to God, right? I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. It's expressing my obedience to God. I'm going to do what you want me to do. 
It's expressing my thanks to God. Thank you for this and thank you for that and so on and so forth. And it's also expressing my allegiance to God. You know, I'm on your team. But we're going to kind of stick with that top one. So if you want to kind of write that down, express my love to God is what we're talking about. We are going to zero in and focus on the, the first part of our Sunday service, the first 20, 30 minutes, and focus on that the singing worship how, as we use that word. But I need you to make sure and understand that from a biblical theological perspective, worship can be a much bigger concept. Let me show you what I mean. Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul is speaking. He says, here's what I want you guys to do. Check this out. Take your everyday ordinary life. Now, today, right now, is not your everyday life. It's your Sunday morning life. It's not your everyday life. It's, it's special. It's once a week, right? Some of us, not even that. It's maybe once every other week, right? So, but it's not ordinary. It's not every day. So he says, take your everyday, your ordinary life. And just to make sure you get it, like you're sleeping and when you're eating and when you're going to work, when you're walking around, when you're going to school, when you're in the supermarket, when you're driving on the highway, your everyday ordinary life. And here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to take it and I want you to place it before God as an offering and an act of worship. The idea of worship and expressing your love to God. Yes, it happens on Sunday morning. We're going to talk about that, but it can be your entire life. If the way you treat your coworkers at work is an expression of your commitment to God and your love for him, that counts as worship. If how you are as a parent or an, and as a spouse if your primary motivation is perspective is how I'm going to relate in that setting is as a response to who God is in my life, that counts as worship. The way you act as an employee, the way you act as a student, if it's, if it's in response and as a way to express love to God, that counts as worship. When someone cuts you off on the highway, how you respond at that moment, right? If you're doing it in response to who God is in your life, that counts as worship. So yes, we're going to focus on Sunday morning, but I want you to understand your whole life can be an expression of love to God, an expression of commitment to God, right? Now let's get back to the passage, Revelation chapter one, and, and, and John begins to give us the, the basic idea of the form of our worship. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 10 on the Lord's day, that Sunday, I was in the spirit I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, this is not the first time he uses this kind of imagery and phraseology to refer to worship. In the Gospel of John, which he also writes, in chapter 4, he says this. Listen, guys, God is spirit. In other words, he can take on the form of flesh, but he's a spiritual being. God is spirit, and so his worshipers, that's us, his followers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Here's all I want you to understand. We're going to get to the part where we talk about actually singing and how we respond to God. But you need to understand that worship, properly understood, uh, you could sing every song, doesn't count as worship, unless it starts right here in your spirit, in your soul, in your heart. It has to be prompted by an overflow of who you are. That's the form of worship. The next section is the, 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 the object of our worship. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put this up here. He goes on in verse 13, and he's got this vision. So he's got this vision, and, and, and he sees lampstands, and he sees stars, and, and he doesn't know what's going on here, but he's clear about one thing. It's who he sees. Amongst the lampstands, he sees someone that looks like, and he uses this term, the son of man or a son of man. Now, that is code for, that is a phrase that every single time in Scripture refers to Jesus. That's Jesus. And that's why I have it in parentheses there. And just to be clear and, and to cement that that's actually who's speaking there, in verse 17, when John gets is afraid of this person because he sees all these flashes and, oh my goodness, what's going on? When he gets afraid, okay, Jesus comes, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, hey, check this out. John, it's me. Remember me, I'm the first and the last, the alpha, the omega. I was dead, but now I'm alive. It's Jesus. Now, if you take your study guide, you guys see your study guide? It's blank today. You guys notice that? It's not because my mind was blank this week. Uh, it's actually exactly the opposite. I went to our church administrator and said, I don't want to put anything on there because I have so much to say. You write down whatever you want to write down, honestly, whatever catches your attention. But I'm going to tell you, if there's one thing you need to understand, if there's one thing you need to get this morning, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. 
It comes from this principle right here. Worship is all about Jesus, not about you. It's all about the son of man. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about the one who died on the cross for our sins. Worship is all about Jesus, not about you. Some of you may recognize the name Matt Redman. Matt Redman is one of the top songwriters, uh, Christian songwriters in the last 20 some years. And, and a while back, he wrote a song called The Heart of Worship. Some of you may recognize and know that song, The Heart of Worship. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Now, see, here's the thing. We can all agree to that. Yeah, thumbs up, pastor. We're with you. It's all about him. But see, you have to be very careful in how you approach Sunday morning and the first part of the service. Now, I realize that sometimes when we, we say certain things, we may not mean what we imply, but let me, let me, let me say this. I'm always cautious. It always is a little bit of a red flag when I hear someone say this. I really enjoyed the worship this morning. Or vice versa. I really didn't care for the worship this morning. Do you know why that concerns me? Because it's not about you. I, I, I don't mean to be blunt. It's never been about you. It's not about whether... Now, I would be a fool as a pastor if I didn't care whether you liked it or not. I want you to like it. But in the end, it's not about you. I don't really care if you like the first part of the service. You know what I care about? Is if he likes the first part of the service. Do you see where I'm going with this? And I'm going to, I get it. I have favorite songs. You have favorite songs. But if at any point in time, you have this attitude like, we're going to sing another song. When's Dave getting up? It's not about you. You see, when you think about a worship service, the second part is about you. This part. You know what I try and do during the teaching time? I try and just get out of the way. I'm hoping you hear from God, not from David. I'm, I'm hoping to explain this to you enough that you hear from God. You don't want to hear from me. You want to hear from God. The second part of the service is for you. Guess what the first part of the service is for? It's for him. It's you having the opportunity to express... Your love, your commitment, your allegiance to him. It doesn't really matter if you like the songs. It doesn't really matter if you know the songs. It doesn't really matter if you have other preferences. Doesn't really matter. You can and should, if you're mature, express your love to God. You can and you should tell him you love him. That's what we should do. Now, I get it. We all have pre- pre- songs that we prefer and don't prefer, styles that we prefer and don't prefer. And we're going to get to that in a minute and try and help you understand what we're doing and why we're doing. But it doesn't matter if you don't understand the theology of worship. And, and I want you to notice at, at the end of this little phrase, there's two exclamation points. You know why? Because some of us don't get it. It's not about you. It's never been about you. Worship is always about God. Worship has always been about Jesus, right? Now, obviously, we're going to try and pick songs that we like, engage with. But be careful going down that path. Be very, very tentative and careful when you go down that path. And don't allow your spirit, your mind, your person to suggest and imply and believe what, what, where we're going with that. I, I understand what we're saying. Yeah, I have favorites too. But even if it's not my favorite... It's not a suggestion whether or not I should worship. It's a command, right? Now, in, in verses 14 through 16, uh, we kind of transition, look at the focus of our worship. You, you have this description of this guy he sees. Now, we know it's Jesus, but it, it scares him a little bit because his hair is super white. His eyes are like blazing fire. I mean, we've read this, but imagining seeing this, right? He's blazing fire eyes. His feet... We're like bronze in his right hand. That becomes significant. He's holding stars. I don't know what's going on here, right? Look at this next one. Is it just me or does this sound gross? Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. This is, this is scary. There's a reason he responds the way he responds. His face is shining in all of its brilliance. Now, what Bible commentators tell us 
is that as with much of what's going on in the book of Revelation, the imagery is meant to try and teach us something. And in this specific case, what John is doing is not just explaining what he sees. He's actually beginning to describe to us who God is. What, what, what is happening in Revelation chapter 1 is that imagery from the book of Daniel is being used to describe the character of God. I don't have time to spend too much time here. You can Google it on your own, but let me show you what, what we think this means. The white hair refers and reminds us that God is holy. His eyes, blazing eyes, remind us he sees everything. He's omniscient. The, the, the feet made out of bronze, the most powerful metal in that day, reminds us our God is a powerful God. The fact that he holds these stars in, in lampstands in his, in his right hand, that is very significant in that culture in that day. It reminds us he's in charge. He's boss. He is sovereign over everything. The fact that he has a sword coming out of his mouth. In the Bible, what, what does a sword typically refer to? To this. That's what this refers to. This is referred to as a sword. It reminds us that he is truthful and his words can be trusted. His face in all of its brilliance reminds us that he's majestic. The form of our worship happens in our spirit. The object of our worship is Jesus. The focus of our worship is the character of God. You know why you and I worship him? Because he's holy and omniscient and all-powerful and sovereign and truthful and majestic and loving and gracious and faithful and on and on and on. You, you don't worship him because of what it does to you. You worship him because of who he is. You, you got to flip it. You got to. It's not about us. It's always been about him. Now, when, when John sees this, right, and it scares him. So, so th- this is his response. Let me show you. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And who can blame him, right? Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time here because uh, we're going to talk about kind of his response and our response and how this all fits in. But, but I want to show you a statue. Let's put the picture of the statue up. This is a, a statue created by a, a Danish sculptor called Thorwaldsen. And the story is told that now, in your case, we're all looking up at it and it's on a pedestal. It's actually not that big of a statue. And so when it's on the ground, you're, you're kind of literally eye to eye with it. And I want you to notice that this particular statue of Jesus, his hands are reaching out and notice the direction of his face. He's looking down. His face is going down. When Thorwaldson first made this sculpture, he went and grabbed one of his buddies, brought him to the workshop. He said, hey, let me show you what I made. Let me show you what I made. And he stood, his friend looked at the sculpture and he said, you know, I got, I got one problem with it. I can't see his face. I can't see his eyes. And so Wallison said, oh no, that's, that's on purpose. You see, if you want to see the face of Jesus, you're going to have to get on your knees. When you have an encounter with Jesus, when you have an encounter with God, it either literally needs to take you to your knees. Have you ever been to a church that has kneeling benches? There's something to be said to that. Now, whether you literally get on your knees or at the very least spiritually get on your knees, emotionally get on your knees, I'm going to show you reverence. I'm going to show you honor because you're God and I am not. So our response needs to be much like John in in chapter 1, verse 17 of Revelation. But there's so much more going on here. I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more. Two things I want to talk to you about in the context of this verse. One is balance. The other is engagement. Let's talk about balance in worship. In the Bible, when we translate the word worship from Hebrew, Old Testament, and Greek, New Testament, what you and I don't realize is that different words are being used. It's not just one word, worship. So, for example, in the New Testament, Greek, um, the two words that are used to refer to worship are shaka and halal. Two Greek words. You, we translate them in our, in our Bibles as worship. But they have different implication. Shaka means this, to be quiet in your worship, to be reverential in your worship, to bow down before God in your worship. It's very reflective, right? It's very reflective. You you know what halal means? It is translated as worship as well, but it has a completely different connotation. It means to shout to the Lord. It means to get excited for Jesus. It means to celebrate. It means to party with Jesus. So 
when you and I have worship on Sunday morning, have you noticed that some of the songs, they're quiet, they're reflective, they're soft. And then some songs are like crazy and party and put your hands together and celebrate for Jesus. You know why? Because both are important. Both are necessary. Now, if you're honest, every one of us gravitates towards one or the other. Every one of us prefers one or the other. But if you want to be mature in your worship, you need to learn both. You need to learn quiet, reflective, bow down before God worship. And you need to learn how to participate in party for Jesus worship. I remember we were having one of these at a service about 10, 12 years ago. This is back when we used to meet at the gym in El Sobrani. And on that particular Sunday, it was both one of the most um, proud moments that I've had as a pastor and one of the most discouraging moments I've had as a pastor. Um, our worship pastor at the time, many of you, if you've been with the church for a while, you'll, you'll know who he is. His name was TJ. And we had decided, we didn't have anybody to do worship with the, with the teenagers when they went to youth camp. So we, I said, just go with them. We'll figure out Sunday morning. You go with them. It's important that they have worship. So he went with them and they did worship up at camp and he introduced a couple songs to them and there was one that they loved. I mean, they loved it. So they went to him and they go like, why don't we do that song on Sunday morning? He's like, well, it's kind of more a youth song, not so much a big church Sunday morning song, you know, and there's songs like that. And, and they're like, please, let's do it Sunday morning. And they, no, we can't do that. Please, let's do it. So he said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. I'll do it on Sunday morning. In fact, I'll do it next Sunday. One condition. All of you have to be in the front two, three rows at church. And they're like, deal. So that next Sunday, after youth camp, they were in the first two, three rows at church. Song number one went through. Song number two went through. Song number three started. It was their song. TJ started with his electric guitar, and they knew what was coming. And they went crazy. They did. I mean, they start at one point in time in the song, it was like a mosh pit, right? They were, they were jumping, they were bumping into each other. And I was like, oh my goodness, I hope someone doesn't get hurt. You know, they went crazy. It was a proud moment to see the youth wanting to be engaged like that at church. But after service was one of my discouraging, most discouraging times as a pastor. When I had a couple from the church come to me, they were an older couple. They'd been at the church for a long time. Good friends of mine and Sandy. And they said, uh, Pastor, we're done. I go, well, what do you mean? We're done. Well, the, the youth this morning, they were out of control. And, and if that's what it's going to be like, and if that's what we're going to allow in this church, we're, we're leaving. We'll find another church. And they've never stepped foot back at Bay Hills again. Now, you may not think this of me, but every once in a while, I have the discipline to bite my tongue. That was one of those moments. What I wanted to say to them is, well, what's the alternative? Do you prefer an alternative where a, a, we have a church where the teenagers, you have to drag them to come to church and they want to sit in the back and they could care less what's going on? Is that, our, is that what we want? Is that what we want to build? Or, you know, I, I didn't want to remind them. I wanted to say that, you know, there's, an, there's a time in Second Samuel when David was out of control in his worship. And he danced before the Lord and people are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's doing that. But I bit my tongue and I shut up and I gave him a hug. You see, if you want to be mature in your worship, you got to learn both. And some of you are really good at the reflective and the quiet worship. And some of you are really good at the party for Jesus worship. And as your pastor, as your spiritual coach, I'm telling you, you got to learn to do both. It's a balanced understanding of what worship is. Beyond that, you have to engage. I know I told you that worship starts here in the spiritual realm. But, but I, I tell you, I will slap you in the name of Jesus, right? <laughs> if you say, well, I, I don't need to sing or do anything. I, I worship him in my spirit. And you just stand there. I, I will put you in a headlock and gr- drag you to the prayer room, right? Why? Because worship requires engagement. It's a verb, It's not you standing, soaking it in. It's you expressing your love to God. Let me give you some examples. Let's put it up there. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, you as faithful people. You want to know how I evaluate worship leaders? My primary way to evaluate worship leaders is not 
is the band tight. It's not, do they hit every note? It's not. You want to know how I evaluate worship leaders? Do they get you to participate? That's it. Do they have the ability to engage you in worship? I could care less if everything up here on stage is perfect. If you're not worshiping, I have seen individuals who've led worship that were great musicians. If they can't get a congregation to participate in worship, they're not great worship leaders. I have seen mediocre musicians and singers that were great worship leaders because they engaged the congregation. So part of the way over the years I evaluate our worship pastor is you. You don't see me a lot of times, but I will walk up and down right there and I will walk up and down over there and I will look at you guys. You know what I'm looking at? Are your lips moving? That's all I'm looking at. And if they aren't, I'm going to have a chat with our worship pastor and go, what do we got to do? Because worship isn't you watching and going, while well, they are doing a good job worshiping. No, we have to be engaged in worship. You have to explain, well, I don't sing real good. It doesn't matter. We won't give you a microphone. That's fine. <laughs> doesn't matter if you can sing well or not. Well, God knows I love him. Oh, okay. What if I did that with my wife? Sandy says to me, Dave, you know, you hardly ever tell me you love me anymore. Come on, babe. You know, I love you. <laughs> I told you when we got married. I mean, what else do you want me to do? How's that going to go over? You, you know what a healthy relationship is? Husband and wife is when I love you just kind of flows off your tongue. It doesn't have to be only on Valentine's Day. It's every, it's when I'm walking out of the house. It's when we're going to sleep. It's that's part of having a relationship. In marriage, that's healthy. Guess what? Jesus and the church are called spouses. Are you or are you not expressing your love to God? I could care less if you like the song. Eventually, we'll get to that. Right? But for the moment, it doesn't matter if you like it. It matters. Are you going to express your love to God? Look at these other things. Psalm 47, verse 1. Now, this is going to be more in the celebratory type of worship. Clap your hands, shout to God with cries of joy. That's why every good worship leader, every once in a while, is like, come on, guys, put your hands together. Put your hands together. It's not, it's not for their sake. It's because there's these examples in Scripture of get engaged. Come, don't stand there like a sculpture. Do something. Right? Look at this next one. Let them praise his name with dancing. Apparently, it's appropriate to even move and dance in church. Now, I grew up in a Baptist, so that concerns me a lot. I don't want to see twerking for Jesus or nothing. But apparently, you know, and some of us are far too white to try and pull off a move in church. But, you know, this is not appropriate all the time. Sorry for that imagery. Let's just move that. Look at this next one. Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. What the heck's going on there? What the heck? Why are some people doing this? You know, or one hand. I don't know what they're doing, you know. Or, or they use three fingers, you know. There's a long horns. Or I don't know what they're doing, right? What, what is going on with the hands, right? Don't overthink it. Don't overthink. Now, yes, I think we all understand there's a... There, and we don't do it in our culture anymore, but, you know, like the emperor comes by and years ago you, you'd get on your knees and put your hands up as a sign of reverence, as a sign of honor and respect. But don't overthink raising your hands. In, in some respects, just think about when and how you raise your hands in, in life. Because a lot of it applies to why you might consider raising your hands in church. I'm going to show you a couple pictures of times that we raise our hands right there. Some of you have experienced all of those. It's okay. We are glad you're here, right? It's, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> Let's talk about picture number one. Let's talk about the one on the left. When a baby does this, what do they want mom and dad to do? Pick me up. Sometimes when you raise your hands in worship, you know what you're saying to your heavenly father? I need to pick me up. Some of you came in here today with heavy, heavy hearts. There's something going on right now in your marriage with your kids, with your finances, with your health, with someone you care about, and you're hurting. God, I need to pick me up. We sang the song, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. 
It's one of the reasons you raise your hand. There's engagement. What that the one in the middle? That's a looks like a Detroit Lion football player jumping into the stands. What is he doing? He's celebrating. Everyone else got their hands up, right? He's celebrating a touchdown. He's celebrating some sort of win. He's got his hands up. Now, I know those of you who are Niner fans haven't experienced a lot of that. Just stay with me, right? But basically, when you raise your hand, when you raise your hands, you're celebrating. You're celebrating. We all came in here with two or three issues. Let's just be honest. We all have two or three issues. Whether we have them under control or not is not the the question. We all have two or three issues. But here's the other thing. We all came in here with a ton of blessings as well. Ton of blessings. My guess is yet you don't show up to church hungry. There's a lot of people on the streets that did. And if you did come a little sooner, we got bagels and donuts for you. Healthy food for you to fill your stomach with. (laughs) My guess is that many of you didn't walk to church. You have a car. My guess is that none of you slept on the street. You have a bed. Many of you are sitting next to people you care about, friends, loved ones. There's so much to be thankful for. Every once in a while when you're praising God, you're like, God, thank you for all the good stuff you've done. Do you realize there's some people that wanted to be here this morning that can't because they're sick in the hospital? You're here? Thank you, God. I want to thank you for all the good things you've done for me. I don't want it always to be about you bailing me out and you helping me out. Every once in a while, I just want to take a moment and say thank you, God. You're good. And that last one, I'm not trying to be funny. It's actually one of the reasons you should be raising your hands or consider it. That is the universal sign of I surrender. Go anywhere in the world. Someone points a gun at you. What are you going to do? If you can't run, you're just going to go. Doesn't matter if they, everyone understands this. I surrender. I, you know what? One of the reasons we raise our hand. God, I surrender. I surrender my will. Instead, I'm going to have your will. And it doesn't even have to be that you've been backsliding or it, just every week. You just remember you're reminded, you know, your way is better than my way. I surrender to that. Well, pastor, I'm just not a clapping kind of guy. <laughs> Raising my hands in church makes me feel uncomfortable. It's not about you. Turn to the person next to him and say, it's not about you. Say it with anger. Say it. It's not about you. Do you have to raise your hands in worship? No. Do you have to clap? No. But you got to do something. Sorry about that. That was wrong. I shouldn't have shouted at you. Let's move on. (laughs) He goes on in verse 18. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let me just give you a quick theology on death. At Calvary, Jesus defeats death, conquers it. In Revelation chapter 1, he holds the keys to death. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, he eliminates death. At Calvary, he conquers death, right? I'm going to win. In Revelation chapter 1, he has, holds the keys to death. And in Revelation chapter 21, he eliminates death. But right now, you know who is the greatest proponent of death? Satan, our enemy. His goal is to kill you, either literally or spiritually or financially or relationally. His goal is to kill you. Something in your life, right? Do you realize our enemy Hates it when we worship. Hates it when we worship. Now, he hates it when we worship because, one, we're acknowledging who God is in our life. But now, here comes the icing on the cake. I know. I know I'm getting on your case. Worship is not about you. It's about God. But here's the icing. There are some benefits to you and me. There are some positive things that we get out of worship and why we need to do it. Let me show you what I mean. Outcome of worship, result of worship. I don't care how you run it. When you worship, it re-energizes your soul. Have you ever come to church and the best part of the service was the first part of the service? I'm fine with that. God spoke to your heart. I'm trying to speak to your brain, a little bit your heart. God speaks to your heart during that worship, reminds you who you are, reminds you he's going to pick you up. 
It re-energizes your soul. It recalibrates my mind. It's so important to remember that the way we think of life is not what's accurate. It's what God thinks about life that's accurate. And a good worship song is always has a biblical basis to it. It always has a truth basis to it. And it recalibrates who we are as people and what we're thinking. It reminds me of my blessings. Yeah, I have two or three problems, issues that I'm trying to work through. But I got I got 10,000 reasons to praise him. Isn't that what that song says? Honestly, just count all the clothes you have. Count all the food items you have. Count all, all the friends you have. My guess is that we do have 10,000 reasons to praise him. We really do. It redirects my path, right? When, when I worship appropriately and I'm feeling differently and I'm thinking differently and I have the right perspective on problems and blessings, it changes what I do. It changes who I am. And finally, it renews my relationship. It, it reestablishes my relationship, our relationship as a church with God. See, worship properly understood is reminding us of life's organizational chart. Every company has an org chart, whether they have it written out or not. They have an org. What's an org chart? An org chart is basically who's in charge, who's responsible for what, who's boss of what. That's what an org chart is. So you got the president up here, and then you got the vice president, and then you got some some managers, and you got some different teams, and maybe you have the administrative team, and then you have the uh, uh, maintenance uh, facility team, and then right at the bottom you have the interns. How appropriate is it for the interns to, to, to take a seat at the boardroom table and to tell everyone else around that table what to do? It's not. You know why? Because they're at the bottom of the org chart. You know what worship is? It's reminding us of creation's org chart. You and I are at the bottom of the org chart. We're not at the top. He's at the top. And just getting that right... It reestablishes my relationship. At the end of this chapter, we read this. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. See, we've talked about all kinds of good stuff, but we haven't talked about the thing that people argue about. What do you say? What do you mean? Well, you want to know what people argue about when it comes to worship? Song selection and volume and style and instruments, and so on and so forth. What are we going to do about that? Well, it, it begins to get answered here. It's the stars in this lampstand. Let me show you what I mean. The seven stars are the angels, the pastors and leaders. Literally, if you look in Scripture, it will identify the stars or angels as that of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. Here's what you need to understand. God gives us the theology of worship. It's you intended to worship Him. That's the goal. But what songs we sing... What instruments we have, how many people we have on stage or not, that's up to each individual church. There's not one perfect style. They're all legitimate as long as you're expressing your love, our love to Jesus. That's it. Now, having said that, if I'm ever going to talk about it, let me show you this next screen. This is what some of us are interested in. Song selection, blended music, generational choices, preferences, choice of instruments, volume of music, worship style. I'm going to go through these real quickly if you're interested. doesn't matter if you're interested or not. I guess I'm going to go through them. I don't know why I said that. But most people are interested in this. <laughs> because they're curious. Why do you do what you do? And here's all I want to say before I answer that. We don't think we're better than any other church. We don't think we're cooler than any other church. We don't think that what we're doing is right and what other people are doing is wrong. I, I honestly believe that. I do want you to know we've thought it through. Right or wrong, we've thought it through. And I'm going to explain to you a couple things. Let's talk about song selection. Why do we choose the songs that we choose? And in particular, what's up with all the new songs? Can't we just pick 100 songs that we all like and just stick to those? Have you ever th thought about that? Why, why do we have to cycle songs out and cycle new songs in? Well, because the Bible says so. Is that an acceptable answer? Do you realize how many times Scripture tells us to sing a new song unto the Lord? 
Psalm 40, verse 3, Psalm 96, verse 1, Psalm 33, verse 3, Psalm 98, verse 1, Psalm 149, verse 1, Isaiah 42, verse 10, Revelation 5, verse 9. I could give you 25 times when Scripture says, Sing a new song unto me, says the Lord. Why? Why? Theologians tell us there's probably two reasons. One is a cultural reason, and one is kind of a theological, psychological reason. Let me take the cultural reason. It's very simple. Styles and language changes over time. Would you agree with that? The only reason we don't use a King James version of a Bible on Sunday morning, it's not, I'm not against that. It's because that's, it's old English. And a lot of times when you read it, people struggle, what does that mean? And I'm not sure I understand. And sometimes, you know, well, we should sing the great hymns of the faith, pastor. They teach the word of God. Yes, they do. But sometimes they use language that people don't have a clue what's talking about. Angels prostrate fall. You're like, I think my uncle had that surgery. I don't know. It's just, what's sometimes the language, they don't understand it, Right. The other reason, and this is very interesting, honestly, this is what we think God's really up to with new songs. You want to know why? There's a psychology and theology to what happens to us when you and I know a song really well. The minute you've sung a song about 25 to 30 times, they've discovered. In other words, the minute you know the lyrics without needing to look in the screen. Right now, some of us, I could sing certain hymns that I grew up singing word for word. Could you? Well, verse one, verse two, verse three, I never knew. We never sung verse three. I don't know what was happening. Verse three and verse four. I could sing them word for word. And so could you. But here's what happens psychologically and theologically. When you know a song so well, you don't need the lyrics to sing it. Here's what happens in your mind. Be honest. You can sing the song and at the very same time be thinking about something else. I'm singing the song, but I'm thinking about the warriors. I'm thinking about vacation. I'm thinking about the doctor's appointment. Honestly, that's what they think God's up to. Where God's saying, I, I know, no, I know. And that, that's a good song. It's a really good song. I like it too. But you know it so well, you're not even processing the words anymore. You're not even processing the lyrics anymore. So guess what? I'm going to force you to sing a new song to re-engage your mind and thereby your soul as to what's happening. That's the answer, Honestly. Well, why can't we have blended music? A little bit of this and a little bit of that. And here's what I've discovered as a pastor. Music is like food. We all have different preferences. Some people like Italian food. Some people like Chinese food. You know, some people like hamburgers. Some people like uh, tofu. I don't understand you folks. But some people, I mean, there's all kinds of different foods. Worship is like that. Music is like that. We, we have different styles. We have different preferences. Let's stay with the food analogy. Have you ever heard of a restaurant that was successful, that served different kinds of food on different days? On Monday, they served Mexican food. On Tuesdays, they served Chinese food. On Wednesday, they served burgers. On Thursday, uh, they served Italian food. On Friday, they served waffles and chicken. On Saturday, they served... Have you ever heard of a restaurant that was successful that way? No, you, know, you know why? It doesn't work. What a restaurant owner tries to do is say, I'm, I'm, I'm all for all the foods. I'm going to pick something I'm good at. I'm going to do the best I can with this type of food. And that's what, that's what we've discovered you kind of have to do with church. When you have this blended, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know what ends up happening? No one's happy. Or everyone's half happy. And here's all I'm saying. There's different styles, and that's completely fine. We've chosen a style, and here it comes. Why? Why this one? Why this particular style, this particular choice of songs, these particular kind of instruments? It, it, here it comes right now. One is generational choices. Here's what I mean. You look at a study. Why do people choose to go to a particular church? You know that there's generational answers, right? In other words, young people choose church very, very different than older people. So if you're, quote, older, you know what older people most care about in church? The sermon. That's why they choose church. You know what young people most care about when they're looking at a church? The music. The music. You say, well, what, are we just catering to the young people? Is that what you're going to do? Careful. Careful. I'm trying to cater to everyone. 
trying to give you a good sermon, but I'm also trying to be smart. I remember I had a, pa- a, a conversation with a pastor on this topic. You, you can't, you're going to please some people more than other people. You, you can't help it. And, and if, you, if you have a certain style of music, you're going to please the younger people. And he says, oh, I'm kind of more interested in pleasing the older people, like the over 50 people. And I said, why? This is what he said. He says, because it's the older people that put the most in the offering plate. I wanted to kick him right between the legs. I'm telling you. <laughs> really? Is that, what, is that the choice we're going to make? I'm trying to do both, but here's, here's the kicker. Look at the next one. Unchurched preferences. What? Let's start with church people. What do church people prefer? You know what studies show? About 50% like modern music, 50% like traditional music. So you can't win. You don't know. Ask unchurched people. You know what an unchurched person is? Someone who hasn't been in church for at least a year other than Christmas or Easter. It's our mission. It's the mission to reach unchurched people in this community. Ask them what preferred style of of worship music do they prefer? You know what nine out of ten say? Modern music. I didn't come up with that. That's what every study is showing. So now you and I have a choice. Are we going to please only those inside the church? Or are we willing to have a strategy that is willing to reach those people? That's the question. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's thought through. Choice of instruments. I have nothing against an organ. You know that, right? In fact, you know this sucker right over here? We could, there's a button you could press and it sounds like an organ. We could do that easily. You know why? We used to have an organ. We, you know that, right? Back at the old church, we had an organ. It was right on the left side of the stage. And you know what I did? I, I realized I, when I arrived at the church, it was 40 people. They brought me in because when you're at 40, you're either going to die or you're going to survive. I wanted our church to thrive. And I remember meeting with the board and saying, you know, one of my opinions is the worship the music style, it's not helping us. It's hurting us. We had, the, we had the organ off to the left side of the stage. You want to know what I did? We didn't have an organist, so it wasn't even getting played. But people love that organ. You want to know what I did? Every Sunday, I moved it one inch. I'm not kidding you. One inch closer and closer to the back door. One inch every Sunday. And no one noticed it. It happened like over... Four months, and before they knew it, bam, it was gone. No one said anything, right? They did say something when we put the drums in. Woo! I'm not saying organs are good or bad. I'm not saying drums are good or bad. All I'm saying is we've thought it through. That's it. Oh, this next one. Isn't this exciting? The volume of music. You know we can't win with this, right? You know that, right? Let me show you the study. Listen very carefully. People over the age of 35, if it's too loud, if the volume is too, why are the drums so loud? I can't hardly hear myself. I'm not saying you sound like that. I'm just, if you're over 35 and it's too loud, you know what people do? They stop singing. Why should I sing? I can't even hear myself. So they stop worshiping, which I don't want. Here's what's very interested. People that are under the age of 35, when it's too soft, when they can hear their voice, guess what they stop doing? They stop singing. We can't win. No matter, every Sunday, by the way, it's 85, we shoot for 85 decibel levels. On youth group night, it's 95 to 105. Just so you know, right? So now we're trying to think this through and I'm just trying to be as brutally honest with you in terms of what we're trying to do and what we're, tr- we're trying to accomplish something that reaches everybody but acknowledges who cares about certain things most with this volume thing. You know, we re- by the way, sometimes it's not volume, it's mix. We're struggling in a room that's not made for acoustics and we're thinking about new speakers and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to volume, we've made a decision on if we're going to make a mistake, what we're going to do. We've made that decision. And I have a prop to show you what the decision is. Behind the name tag counter, we have this bucket. You know what this bucket is? Earplugs. 
Sometimes I pull these out and wear them. We've already made the decision. By the way, would it surprise you that what we sing Sunday morning is not my preferred worship style? What's on my iPod for worship music is not what we do Sunday morning. Would that surprise you? Would it surprise you to tell you that uh, I don't dress this way on Sunday morning because I'm trying to be cool? You know what I would prefer to wear? This one might surprise Suit and tie. I'm a suit and tie kind of. I love suit and ties. That's not. Why are you laughing at that? I like suit and ties. Someone laugh. I'm going to wear one next week. Watch. Why do I why do I dress like this? You know why? I came across a study that said that people that don't come to church, you know what they'd like to go. You know what they'd willing to go to church at if the pastor stopped wearing a robe, the pastor stopped wearing a suit and tie. If the pastor just seemed a little more approachable, I might show up. I had a friend of mine. I kept nagging him to come to church. He said, I want to come to your church. He was one of the parents of the kids that I coach. I'll come. I want to come. And he kept, he kept saying that and never came. Finally, I said, just be honest with me. What's going on? This is what he said to me. I don't own a suit and tie. So when I get one, I'll show up. And I realized, you know, there's a huge difference between substance and style. Would you agree? Not only with how someone dresses, but the style of worship. The style. When it comes to style... We've made a choice, not because we think we're better than someone else, not because we think other churches are whatever. I've had people say, well, I want a traditional style with your sermon. The problem is it's kind of a package deal. I'm going to end with one story. Remember I told you about the drums when I moved them into the sanctuary? About 20 years ago, I had an elderly lady come up to me and she said at church, She said, Pastor, I am not happy with the worship. I do not like the worship. And she just went off on me, right? I'm a 26-year-old kid trying to figure out what to do and how to do church. But I have discovered very quickly that our music wasn't helping us. And I listened to her. And this is what I responded. Help me build a church that reaches your grandkids because they're not here, are they? And I'm going to say to you what I said to her. You know what I expect? I expect the most mature people in the church. And that tends to be those of you who are older. Those of us that are older. I'm over 50. So it's it's us. I expect, expect the most mature people in the church to act like the most mature people in the church. I expect if there's anyone that's going to get it, anyone... For you to understand worship, it's really not about you. Now, you can have preferences like I have. There's nothing wrong with that. But irrespective of what is sung or not sung, you still have an obligation to worship. Over the years, we've had a handful of people that have said, Pastor, I just can't worship to that style. And I get it. And I give them a hug. And I say, you're always welcome back. I don't want you to leave. And again, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying we have it all right. I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying we're doing the best. It's thought through. That's all I'm saying. We've at least thought it through, right or wrong. You have a responsibility to worship him. It's always been about him. And I want to wrap up by reading these verses, and then I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and worship put this last slide up there do I have a last slide I must not have a last slide is what I'm being told why don't you stand with me we'll pray oh there it is thank you okay okay sit back down no 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 just stay standing get up Marlon let the whole earth sing to the Lord each day proclaim the good news that he saves Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and joy fill his dwelling. Give to the Lord 
the glory he deserves. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Tell all the nations the Lord reigns. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Praise the Lord who lives from everlasting to everlasting. And all people shouted, Amen, and praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we worship you. Understanding that it's not about us, it's all about you. Father, help us be the kind of church that honors you in our worship. We take a moment now to take what we've learned and to apply it and to express our love to you. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.